I would invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. As we continue in our study through the Pentateuch. Genesis chapter 10. If you've uh, been with us in the sermon so far in Genesis, then you'll remember that one of Moses' systems that he uses for organizing Genesis is his use of these ten Toledotes, these ten histories or generations, these recordings of, of what happened to a significant individual, or in the first case, what happened to the heavens um, and the earth. And what he does is he, he just records, uh, tells the narratives related to these individuals, and then when necessary, kind of provides a genealogy to take us from one significant individual to the next. So these ten Toledotes, as, as up on the screen, are split into the two sections of five, and we've studied four of the first five, one, two, three, and then last week we did the fifth one. There we go. Was that not up that whole time? There you go, the Toledotes. Um, so we've studied four of the first five, and this morning we're looking at the final one, which is in the order that we've taken it, the sons of Noah, chapter 10, verse chap- through chapter 11, uh, verse 29. Which means, in one way, we're halfway through the book of Genesis, and in another way, we're, we're only 20% through the book of Genesis, and there's, there's much to go. But as we look back at this first section, this first series of five Toledotes, just reflect with me for a moment at, at uh, all of this, this ancient history, this beautiful narration, rich theology that we've experienced, all the way back to the, the creation poem in chapter 1. And then the forming of the first man and the first woman in Genesis 2 and 3. Then this great deception, but even greater mercy that the first humans experience in their fall. In chapter 4, we've seen innocent blood spilled with the first two sons, Cain and Abel. And the ground has to drink the, the innocent blood of Abel. Even then, Cain experiences mercy, doesn't he? As God marks him with a mark that tells no one to touch him, to kill him. Um, and then this spiral in these first two lines from the, the line of the serpent, the line of Cain, and the line of Eve, the line of Seth. This evil and good lines pitted against one another. The line of darkness and the line of hope that we saw in chapters 5 and into chapter 6. Chapter 6, we discovered Noah. And then the next few chapters uh, delved into his life in this significant uh, flood, this flood of judgment and this flood of mercy where God made and kept his promises, right? He, he remembered Noah. And we ended with the covenant of mercy two weeks ago that God gave to all of humanity uh, to, to hang up his bow, right? This peace treaty covenant. And then last week, anticipating the, the continuation of blessing through the line of Shem with that unique circumstance where the sons of Noah, one was given blessing uh, for his honor and the other cursing for his dishonor. Now that's where we find ourselves this morning. This first series of five Toledotes has had a very broad emphasis, right? A very human emphasis, not, not specific, really, not, not following one family necessarily, but all of humanity in Adam and in Noah, the families of the earth. But 
While Moses has done that, a very broad focus, he's also maintained a specific focus on how the families of the earth relate to Israel, which we really have yet to discover this family, this promised covenant family. That starts next week. But Moses, writing later, is writing all of these things, all of these histories, these theologies. He's writing them through the perspective of Israelite eyes. And that reality is quite evident in the text this morning as Moses sort of seals the first portion of the book by examining the establishment of these first nations after the flood. What happened to the sons of Noah after the flood? He surveys their most uh, like prominent descendants and he traces even a little bit more than just the linear father-son relationships by identifying like how all of these nations begin to spread, how they're interacting with each other, what their relationships are to one another. So this text we're about to read in a moment from a cultural and from a historical perspective, it teaches us quite a bit about the, the origin of language or the origin of multiple languages, uh, some political realities, international relationships, the unity and the division of the human family. Um, so there's quite a few things that we can draw out just as human beings as we look back at history. From a reading and comprehension standpoint of Genesis, this text is essential um, as Moses really bridges the gap from one section into the next. It introduces names, places, people that we're about to start reading in chapter 12. We would have no context for that without chapter 10 as it lays the land. Almost Moses sort of paints out a map of what things look like. Um, from a Jewish perspective... This text teaches the nation uh, the nature of their relationships with the tribes and families around them. And most importantly, from a theological perspective, this teaches us about the relationship of God to human history. That God directs human history to, uh, to accomplish his desired end. He is not absent from the establishment of families and cultures and countries. The activities of humanity, both individuals and groups alike, are known and understood by God. He can see the, the holy or the profane motivations that fuel human achievement. But he doesn't only see it, he responds to it. He interacts with it. At the right time and at the right place, according to his divine will, God interjects in the lives of his creatures as he charts the course of human history. Nothing happens outside of his permission, and no one can stop him when he decides to act. So a few comments then about, a few other comments, uh, more literary comments about chapter 10. That will help as we read through it. One of them is that in this section, as we read, even verse 1, you see both the phrase sons or sons of, and then the phrase born or begot. Those two words are the words that Moses uses to, to uh, work through chapter 10. So the first one, sons of, which is the most frequent one, that emphasizes the father within the relationship, the father in the family dynamic. So it points then up 
the family tree or backward to the roots of the ancestral line. So Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth. That's always emphasizing where they've come from. But that's not the only thing that the Toledot's doing, right? It's not pointing backward. It's also leading us to discover what became of, which would lead us forward. And that's the second word. When he uses begot, he's pointing more toward the son and where the son took the, that family and what he did, perhaps his, some of his accomplishments or the cities that he developed or the nations that he founded. Um, so, so, Sons of looks back up the family tree and then begot looks down to the descendants. The second and final comment about just how Moses is using this literarily is that at the end of every son, where we go down the descendants of Japheth at the end, sons of Ham at the end, sons of Shem at the end of all three of those, Moses says something like, uh, according to, or these were the sons of that son, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and according to their nations. He uses those four sort of categories to summarize every son. And what he's doing there, the families relates to like the bloodline, right? The, re- the relationship of the relatives, the DNA, those who share DNA is one of the things that sorts out these early nations. So genetics, you could say. The second category, languages, is probably the most straightforward. This is the tongue in which a group of people communicates. That also tends to be a dividing line, right? If we can understand one another, we are united. If we can't, then we are not. The lands is the third one that he uses, and that is like the, the, quite like if you looked at a map, that's our state lines and those sorts of things. That is the division lines between uh, tribes and nations. So that's geography. And then the final one is more of a political entity, nations. That's the structure and the organization between perhaps a series of families who share the same tongue, who live in the same place. So that's probably the broadest of the four. So all this to say, as we work through chapter 10, you're not just reading father-son relationships. You're also reading city names and place names and political entities, these first nations. So there's a variety of different words that Moses is engaging in this genealogy. It's unique to all of the other ones in Genesis. Okay, enough out of me. Let's read Genesis 10. And then 11, 1 through 9. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Second son, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. 
He began to uh, to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kalsuhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza. And then you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem, the father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Sheleph, uh, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Safar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there... The Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Father, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, there would be great clarity. 
Genesis 10 is filled with what to us are strange names and places. Much of it is foreign and unnatural. So we pray that the simple truth that is intended would resonate in the hearts of your people today. We pray that from the Tower of Babel, we would learn about arrogance. We would learn about your sovereignty and that we would humbly be willing to cast our name with yours and to make your name great. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Obviously, chapter 10, we could spend a lot of time walking through all of the names and all of the details and trying to draw lines with the names toward, toward what we know of them or the possibilities of the places that they land in and, and all of that. And it would probably be quite, quite tedious. So instead, we're just going to sort of do a, a broad brush, which I think is the most intent regardless. The, and this graphic generally communicates what's going on. So the least amount in chapter 10 is said about the first son, Japheth. And he's recorded generally in the red there to the north. Um, he travels from the approximately blue or purple dot, which is the, the region of Babel. He travels north and west from there. So he is, I mean, all of Asia being covered, colored there is perhaps a bit generous, but, but he's the founder of the Greek and the Scythian tribes, all of this sort of Southern European, uh, these families. The next most is said about Ham. And he travels, that's the yellow, he travels primarily south from Babel and west to the continent that we now know as Africa. And he founds Egypt, which, uh, as you read, Mizraim, as we read through chapter 10, that's the Hebrew word for Egypt. His family line also maintains this strong presence in that red box right in the center, right in Canaan. That's about the northernmost point of Ham. And that's why all of those Canaanite families were detailed out for us, because they are particularly relevant to the nation of Israel, aren't they? So Ham is this sort of mighty man, and he, uh, there's also some, some southwestern uh, Arabic families that are related to him. So a lot of this southwest region is where Ham went. I think my, probably my biggest complaint about this graphic, which was not original to me, is that within Ham, we don't really have uh, the very significant Nimrod related in yellow here. So close to the Babel area, there should be another yellow circle because Nimrod, who is from the line of Ham, founded the Assyrian Empire. His, his, you can trace it back to some of these first early big eastern cities were his. He was the founder. So it include kind of a yellow section on the northeast part of the, the light area. Then finally, we have Shem. Shem. And from Babel, he does move a little bit south and east. He sort of takes up the majority of uh, the Arabian Peninsula there, close by the Persian Gulf. Um, and, and less is known about some of the families, except for the singular family that we know about beginning in chapter 12, and that is Abraham and, and the Israelite family. Some of the other things are sort of hard to piece together as it relates to, to all of Shem's relatives. But this uh, area around the Persian Gulf, close to where Babel originated, is where they stayed. 
So of course, yes, it would be, it would be too tedious to walk through all of this. Um, but there is one particular character, at least, that stands out with significance on the table, and that is Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Ham. And quite a bit is detailed about him, and it's significant because it ties in with chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. So I direct your attention back to verse 8. This is um, in the, the yellow family. Cush begot Nimrod... And he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, so there's this proverb about him, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's significant. Chapter 11, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went, I wonder why, he went to Assyria and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. So, a few things about Nimrod. First, when it says he's a mighty one on the earth, he's identified as a Gibor, which is one of these similar to the Genesis 6, these mighty men, these men of renown, a mighty man of old. He's an innovator. He's a politician. He's a warrior. Uh, he's a man of power. He's a city builder. He's a ruler of men. He's one of these greats in the Old Testament, particularly following the flood. So that is Nimrod. He was known for his strength. He was known for his fighting abilities and his hunting. And this phrase that he's a hunter before the Lord could be interpreted positively, negatively, or sort of neutrally, right? The positive and negative might be the Lord's perspective of him. If he's before the face of God, he's probably positively or negatively, or this could just be before the Lord, meaning like sort of a superlative use of before the Lord. Like if he's known before anyone, even before God, he's a great man. He's a mighty one. So I think we actually do better than looking at the phrase before the Lord to identify whether he's good or bad or what God thinks of him. Then to do two other things. One, to look at the son from which he descends. He descends from Ham. He descends from the cursed line. And then to look at his activities, to look at what he's doing. What is he about? And what he's about is that he is the founder of ancient cities that reject Yahweh outright. He's leading, misleading people away from God. So it's much like Lamech, if you remember in the earlier genealogy, Moses presents Nimrod as this sort of larger than life, mighty ruler who's actively working to lead people in an anti-God agenda. That's what he's about. And the first city building project that Nimrod undertakes at the beginning of his kingdom, in verse 10, is Babel. This is his, his baby. The beginning of his kingdom building enterprise. And it's the story of that city, Babel, that is at the heart of understanding what became of the sons of Noah. The way in which Moses plays this out is fascinating. Because when we read chapter 10, we know something has to have already happened. When it says they were dispersed by languages, we're thinking, languages? There's one tongue. How are you dispersed by your languages? And when Nimrod begins building the city and they begin uniting and all of these things, you're thinking, wait, but they're spread out eventually. Something has to have happened, and this is precisely what happened. For the sake of 
time, I'll just briefly mention this, but we're not going to walk through it in detail. This is, once again, a chiasm of, the, of uh, chapter 11, 1 through 9. One of the distinct things about this chiasm is that on the way back out of the chiasm, it's antithetical to the, to the first portion. So instead of being a parallel pair, it's sort of a parallel opposite in most cases. So... I perhaps should have showed this before we read through it, but uh, we begin with one language that is significant to the text. And then, of course, we end at the equal opposite with many languages. The Lord confuses the language of all the earth. So what became of the sons of Noah? We'll just leave this up as we sort of walk through the text. You'll remember the familiar uh, words of blessing that God spoke to all the way back with Adam and Eve. To their, in their commissioning. And then he restated them with Noah and his sons when he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So each of the three sons and their families, they begin multiplying. And as generations increase and the global population increases, we're about four generations from Noah at this point. Their desires are increasing, innovations, abilities, all of it is growing. But despite their differences, the clan of Noah stays together. All the sons and all of their families. And they move eastward. And they settle together in this fertile land of Shinar. Located in Mesopotamia. That movement eastward at the beginning of the text in verse 2. It's translated here, uh, journeyed from the east. That it is in Hebrew is in the east, and I think the point is is actually as so we look geographically from Ararat over to Shinar, that movement is east, and then there's supposed to be this sort of chill that falls on the reader as they hear that all of the family of Noah unites and moves east because this eastward movement marks separation. In Genesis, God placed a cherubim on the east side of Eden, separating Adam and Eve from the tree of life. After killing Abel, Cain is banished to the east, separating himself from the family. In the future, when Abraham and Lot split directions, Lot settles toward the east near Sodom. It's like a literary use of the direction that not good things, that good things don't happen when you move east, when you move away from the presence of God. So these people, united by language, united by mission, they express their plans. And what do they do? They begin making bricks thoroughly prepared by fire. Good bricks, a time-consuming process. But they're determined to create this building material that is sturdy, something that will last the test of time. The descriptions of these building materials may just be in part for contrast to Israel and what they use in their buildings, stone rather than mortar and brick rather than asphalt. That may be what Israel was familiar with. But as this building project develops, their motives are explained in verse 4. It exposes that the reason for their interest in all of this innovation is twofold. First, let us make a name for ourselves. Second, so, or the purpose, so that we will not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They believe that a magnificent city and tower 
will prevent them from being scattered over the face of the earth. So these two things, let's, let's address the tower first. This is a massive civilization that they're seeking to establish. This is a city for the people of all of the earth. And at its heart, there is a tower, or you could even say a mountainous tower, something that reaches its, its arms almost like stretched so that it can reach into the heavens. Other Old Testament passages that use that same phrase, reach into the heavens, ironically describe some of the cities of the Canaanites in the land of Canaan. Uh, figurative language to describe, you know, these edifices that are, that are very impressive and very of monumental proportions. And so the returning spies told Moses that the cities of the Canaanites are great and fortified up to heaven. Even God described the cities of, uh, that Israel was supposed to dispossess um, as cities great and fortified up to heaven in Deuteronomy 9. Then later, there's an oracle from Jeremiah against Babylon, uh, which is related at least ideologically to these people, that includes a passage strikingly similar to Genesis 11, where he says, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come up come from me upon her, says the Lord. And so whether the, the per, it's often been a question, is, is this tower overtly religious and, or overtly pagan, you could say. And I actually don't know that that answer is clear. So if it is a religious tower, then it's obviously bad. But even if it's not a religious tower, then the picture hints very strongly at the great hubris, the great pride and arrogance of the people as they lift up their name, their reputation up to the skies. After being told by God to disperse, right, to fill, to go broadly, to go widely, they instead choose to grow upward and to build, build, build this mountainous tower up to the heavens, up to the gods. And they believe that their plan is better than or outweighs that of God's own. That's directly related to the name that they're seeking to make. This name is like your reputation. I mean, it can just be your name, like my name's Kayla, but it can also be like, what is my reputation? What is my, how do people know me? And if I'm trying to establish my name, I might try to form something that lasts beyond my death. I might try to make a move toward immortality by making something that lasts beyond me. And that's what they're seeking to do. These builders led by Nimrod are seeking to establish an unquestionably magnificent reputation. And so they gather with their great bricks and they excitedly make these plans for the greatest city ever built by man. Let us make our mark on this land. So the titanic nature of this project naturally brings certain fame, doesn't it? That's true of buildings today. An architect perhaps might design something of monumental proportions in order to make his name last. We could even look back to, you know, the wonders of the ancient world. All of them were, they're sizable, aren't they? They're, they're incredibly big and, and they last past generations. Some of them even to today. Significance, fame, immortality, the building of ego, 
And what they think that will do is guarantee their security. So this is a matter of controlling fortune, controlling fame. That's what they're trying to do. In the center of the story, once they've established their motive, so we're now like to the midpoint of the chiasm. The one language, and then the use of the word there that we'll look at at the very end in application. Then they say these things to each other in the plural, right? Come, let us make bricks. Let us build for ourselves the city and tower. So God's been absent from the narrative intentionally. Now God shows up. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of men are building. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So in anthropomorphic terms, Moses describes the coming down of God to observe the works of man. Obviously, God does not need to physically come down to make observations. In fact, the anthropomorphic language came down indicates that he knew something. (laughs) It indicates knowledge. And so Moses' point in this description of God is twofold. One, God is deeply deeply interested in the activity of humanity. He sees it, he knows it, and he's actively shaping, shifting, directing it. Secondly, we're supposed to mock Nimrod. It's ironic language, isn't it? That this great tower to the heavens was one that God had to come down to. The builder's intent to construct and build and build so far into the heavens. And God, it's almost like the imagery, right? He peeks over the edge of heaven. He's like, I think I see something down there. Let me go see what's going on. Of course he knows. It's it's like a literary point that Moses is trying to make. It's way down there. They didn't do what they were trying to do. No matter how high humanity builds, God will always be higher. His status is above all. At every turn, the language reflects the condescension of God. This is a celestial being observing the business of terrestrial beings that he made. So we're supposed to look at it with like, all of the great things that we can do are still very minute from the perspective of the divine. And yet, what does God do? He doesn't scoff and and mock the building He doesn't consider it much ado about nothing, not because of the building, but because of the hearts of humanity. There's no suggestion that he views this as as a joke. He doesn't laugh at them or ridicule them. Rather, he actually takes the scheme quite seriously. In fact, he says, if something's not done here to abort this project, then the consequences could be pretty far reaching. And it's God's judgment, his... uh, as he looks at the situation, he assesses that the ability of humanity united is actually quite great. When they have one heart, one mind, one speech, they can do quite a bit when they put their minds to it. That's attributed to him and and his image in us and, and the abilities he's given to us. But his concern is also that such a arrogance motivated scheme will become a device the, the tower, the city, will become a device that then fuels and patterns 
all of the great schemes of humanity. So the root problem's not the building, but the hearts of the fallen humanity united. So the divine, he holds counsel with himself, and he determines to create a multitude of languages within the group, which will naturally cause them to stay with the ones they understand and move out from the singular location to do what he has called them to do, fill the earth. So it's sort of a, as we think about language, language is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Um, It's also can be a frustrating thing. We sort of sense perhaps some of the tension of the good and the bad in this judgment, but it is a uh, merciful and beautiful act of judgment from the divine orchestrator. If you can imagine, I I don't even exactly know how to play this out in my head, but just imagine whatever is happening in your head, the confusion that takes place that morning, that day when they're perhaps hard at work, perhaps not, perhaps they're sleeping and they just wake up this way and they are speaking in a tongue that they have never heard before, but they get it. But nobody else's except perhaps a few other people, perhaps their families. That would be a terrifying and highly confusing moment in time, wouldn't it? I think you would know that God was there. You would know that the, the angel of the Lord visited last night and he doesn't like our project. And what happens as a result? They ceased building the city. The project is abandoned. Work stops immediately. The people are scattered. God accomplishes precisely what he wanted to accomplish. Like a surgeon with a scalpel, he makes one move and everything happens according to his will. It's incredible. And it, well, he's keeping his word too. He didn't come down with fire, did he? He didn't torch the city. He, they're all in one place. It's easy. Throw up a fence and throw down some fire and brimstone and it's done. But no, he's keeping his promise. He, he blesses them in their, in their judgment. And so the city gets its ironic name, Babel, which has lasted to even in our English language being an onomatopoeia, right? The Babel, 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 Babel. It doesn't make sense. It's confused languages. We don't understand one another. The people want to make a name. And so God gives them a name. Babel. Shame. Frustration, abandoned projects, that's their reputation. It's like the, the king who didn't count the cost before going into battle. <laughs> he didn't know who he was up against, and so his, his party's decimated. It didn't work. The city, once destined for greatness, now has all of its builders dispersed. And Babel does function to us as a prototype of all anti-God cities, namely Babylon. There's some disagreement about whether this is in the same location as the later Babylon. And that's not really the point. The point is Moses is using this, certainly. And the people later knew the city as a place where arrogance failed. As a place where confusion reigned. And that is true of all nations that have set themselves against God. Let's reflect with some application on both of these pieces, on chapter 10 and chapter 11. From chapter 10 particularly, but woven through both, we see that the human race is one family, isn't it? There is a measure of unitedness to us. We all came from God. We bear his image. 
We are from Adam. We are from Noah. Every one of us. We are one family. And that should encourage many things, including love and equality of value and, and unity, even in the face of many barriers, cultural and, and land, all of the ones that were mentioned, family and land and, and language and nation, all of those things. Humans don't uh, possess variant values based upon anything, based upon their ethnicity or based upon their age or based upon their uh, abilities or what they can do, what they produce for humanity. That is not where we discover the value of an individual. We discover the value of an individual from the fact that they are a human being created in the image of God. And it's encouraging to remember in the face of all of this sort of frustration and, and honestly a, a hopeless mo- moment in the narrative, which is contrary to the entire series of Toledotes previously. I haven't all the dark, uh, dark moments ended with like moments of light, moments of mercy, There's no clothing of Adam and Eve here. There's no mark of Cain here. There's no covenantal promise here from God to Noah. It's sort of like, oh, God spoke and now we're scattered. And we don't know what happens next. The only thing that remains is is a promise from Noah or an invocation from Noah to Shem that think that God honors, right? But we don't know really anything about that yet. There's three to four hundred years here between what happens now and what happens in chapter 12. So pretty dark time. So it would be encouraging for us to remember on a day like today as we look back at that, that the human race will be united once again. As we think eternally, as we think of the kingdom of God being established on this earth, and we think of the king who comes to reign and he unites his people, we will be of one family, of one tongue, and we will understand one another. There will be knowledge and clarity, and the thing that's better that, that time than this time is that we won't be seeking to make a name for ourselves, but we will be completely changed. Right? We will be holy in our union. And that will be a blessed day when much of this brokenness is healed. We mentioned it at the beginning, but I want to reflect on it one more time at the end. God sovereignly directs the course of the nations. That's helpful for us today as well. As we look at our own country, as we look at the other major world powers, all of these Men mostly filled with hubris, mostly anti-God. That tends to be the character of powerful individuals. They are the continuation of the Lamex and the Nimrods. And so it's encouraging to us that God cares. That the Proverbs 21.1 teaches us that the king's heart is where? In the hand of the Lord. And what is God doing with this king's heart in his hand? Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Just as Genesis 11 is a premier example of. So how should we think about our nation? How should we think about powerful rulers? Know that God is ultimately ruling. Know that nothing happens outside of his permission. And no one can stop him when he acts. That should inform our perspective of the world around us. 
Finally, God will establish his own name. Arrogant men will always rise and attempt immortality, but they will certainly fall. Solomon talks quite about that, quite, uh, quite a bit about that in Ecclesiastes. And time doesn't permit for us to explore all of the literary devices Moses was using in chapter 11, but one of them that I haven't mentioned that's particularly pertinent to this point is that he uses the word Shem all throughout this story. It doesn't really come across to us, but he uses the sound of Shem's name. You remember in chapter 9 at the end, Shem is the blessed son and his name means name. So what Moses is doing is constantly throughout the narrative, without using the word, he only uses the word once, but he's constantly saying name, 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 like echoes. How does he do that? Well, in verse 4, it's explicit. Let us make a name for ourselves. But then in two other ways, he does. The word there, their simple place, is sham. And so where do the people gather? They gather there in Shinar. And where does God send them? Well, seven, eight, nine, indeed, uh, let's see, come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So he goes down there. He goes to Sham. And then the Lord scattered them abroad from Sham over the face of all the earth. And then verse 9, its name is called Babel because Sham, the Lord, confused the language of the earth. And from Sham, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Name, 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 constantly echoing throughout the passage. He also uses the word heaven, which is Shamaim. That's where God resides. He resides in the place that sounds for the purpose of Moses' literary devices, just like a name. So what, what does this do for, for us, particularly? I think what it does is it points us to consider the name of God. Perhaps even to a passage like Acts chapter 4, where Peter rises up and he stands up in the face of opposition and he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we are to be judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which, the reject, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or perhaps a passage like Philippians 2 that says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and has given him the sham, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, my brothers and sisters, as the children of God, we are in the business of glorifying, adding weight, value, 
telling the peoples of the nations that God's name is great. The point is never your or my notoriety. It doesn't matter what people think of us, know of us, or what happens when, with our name when we die. We know what happens with our name when we die. If you are in Christ, then your name is in Him. It is the name of Christ whereby we've been saved and whereby the nations need bow their own, need cease their own building projects and repent and believe in that name. And in Him, we would be willing to be forgotten so long as His name is remembered.